Morning, brothers and sisters. Good to see you all, and really good to worship our great God and Savior together. Um, it's an encouraging morning already, I know, for me, so I hope it has been for you as well. So after a few weeks away out of the book of Genesis, um, we're going to dive back in to our study through the book of Genesis, and we come to the longest chapter of the whole book this morning, chapter 24, 67 verses long, okay? So guess what? We're going to actually read 67 verses, um, and I encourage you, that's where we're going to start. That's point number one, entering into the story. So I encourage you to engage and really try to enter into the story. So I'll stop in just a couple places, you know, give a few explanatory comments as we read through it, but really the whole purpose as we begin is to, to get in to the world of the story and really pay attention to what's going on. All right? So it might take like 10 minutes, but what better use of time than just reading God's Word together because my words aren't living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, but God's words are. So um, let's pray that He will use them and strike them home to our hearts because He doesn't just intend to inform our heads this morning. He intends to change us from the inside out um, in our hearts. So, Father, I pray that you would please open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, incline our hearts to your word and not to selfish gain or the gazillion things that could distract us. Lord, enable us to engage with you as we attend to your word. Give us ears to hear and humble, receptive hearts to to perceive and receive what you have to say to us and how you want to change us and how you want to encourage us and how you want to motivate us and how you want to strengthen our faith this morning. And certainly for anybody that's here that is not trusting you, would you grant them faith this morning? Would you open their eyes for the first time to see who you are, to see who they are in need of your saving grace. Show yourself the wonderful, trustworthy God that you are and rescue them. So we all need you this morning and I need you and uh, we pray that you would lend your help by your spirit work among us in a, in a powerful way for the sake of your glory and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Genesis 24. Uh, you can find it on page 17 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you and Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's the beginning story. Um, it's how it all began. So chapter 24. We're coming to the end of the cycle that was all about Abraham from chapters 20, or 12 to 25, and it's going to transition to his son Isaac and his soon-to-be new wife, Rebecca. All right, Genesis 24.1. Now Abraham was old, well-advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So we'll stop here right at the beginning, and we should hear fulfillment of promises right here, okay? 
Genesis 12, verse 1, when the Lord showed up and called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then, after he is willing to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis twenty-two fifteen, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So all this blessing was promised. And here Abraham is old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had done just that. He blessed him in all things just like he said. Verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. All right, so we're not totally sure of the significance of this custom, but given the location here, we can surmise this was a solemn oath having to do with Abraham's posterity. Okay, yes, I am speaking in euphemistic terms, and this is a euphemism, so we'll stick with it, and we'll move on. All right? Verse 3, so put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, God of heaven, God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac from there. Okay, now listen. From where they are right here and where his homeland was, that's like a four to five hundred mile trip. This is not, you know, you know up, up the road a piece. This is a long trip. So keep that in mind here. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me. Follow me back another four or five hundred miles to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, the land of Canaan, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So listen, what's going on is the future of the people of God is in Canaan, the promised land, just as God had promised, not back in Babylonia where Abraham grew up. But that doesn't mean that intermarriage with the idolatrous Canaanites is an option for Abraham's son. Okay? It certainly would have been easier to find a Canaanite woman for Isaac. In fact, it could have even been economically and politically advantageous. So new alliances mean security and prosperity, right? But Abraham had already learned his lesson regarding taking matters into his own hands, right? It only made for trouble when he and Sarah did that. 
So he's trusting the Lord here. So God's people, the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, are to be a new and different people. They're supposed to trust in Yahweh and not assimilate to the idolatry of the nations. As um, Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, writes, Abraham sets an example for his descendants to secure wives from the blessed Semites, not the cursed Canaanites. He was going to trust God and be guided by his promises, no matter the inconvenience, no matter the risk. Okay, So basically what's happening here, it's, it's kind of like an embryonic principle that will become more explicit later. So when the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 7, God says, You shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And then that principle leads to the language in the New Testament of not being unequally yoked. Or, for instance, a statement like this in 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay, so God's people getting together with God's people. Okay, because otherwise this unequally yoked thing can lead the believer astray. Okay? So, um, Abraham's directives to his servant here are evidence that he's being guided by God's words and his promises. So this is faith in God's promises on display. God said, this is the land I'm giving you. So Abraham's trusting that, and he's saying, don't take my son back because he's supposed to be here. This is the land God's given to us. So it's a result of confidence in God that he's going to make good on his promises that Abraham's descendants will possess the land. So God had dealt with Abraham with covenant loyalty, this word chesed in Hebrew. And Abraham is responding to God with chesed, okay, covenant loyalty. And Abraham's servant is responding to his master with chesed, with loyalty. Verse 9, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show chesed steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may, that I may drink, and who shall respond, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for my servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown chesed, steadfast love, covenant loyalty to my master. This servant is exemplary. He is dependent on Yahweh, on God. He honors his master. He wants to do Abraham good. He wants Yahweh to show his master steadfast love. What is the orientation of this master? He is focused on God and others. 
God and his master. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his master. It's a beautiful example. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. So we could just kind of blow by this because probably none of us have ever watered a camel, okay? But this could have taken a really long time. So camels, I read this week, can drink upwards of 25 gallons after a long journey, okay? And how many camels were there? Ten. And her jar probably didn't hold much more than three gallons. So do the math. Actually, I can do the math for you so you're not distracted here for the next five minutes. Um, So let's say conservative 20 gallons, 10 camels will make it easy, 300 gallons, three-gallon jug. How many trips? Maybe she borrowed, you know, Naomi's jug, her friend, and said, I got I to two-fist this because there's a lot of camels. So we'll cut that in half, and it's 50 trips. 50 trips. So this is clear evidence of her character. She's willing to go above and beyond call of duty. She's a willing and hospitable woman. Like, servanthood characterizes the people of faith. You remember back in Genesis 18 when there were visitors to Abraham and Sarah's tent? You remember he said, quick, fix this, and he runs and he goes, and it's, it's really conspicuous how he serves. She's doing it the same way. So the people of faith characterized by this servanthood and hospitality. So verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence, to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So you can just hear him praying silently. Is this the one? (laughs) Is she the one, Lord? When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man just, yes. (laughs) He bows his head and worships the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. He's saying, I love the providence of God. Bless his glorious name. Thank you, God, for leading me. So the young woman runs, tells her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. 
As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, are we maybe seeing early hints of Laban's true character? Kind of driven by greed, maybe. And heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But the servant said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So in a sense, he's avoiding a situation where he's handcuffed by obligations to the host. He's like, I'm going to tell you my business first and then we can eat as long as you're okay with it at that point. So he said, speak on. Laban says, speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him, Isaac, the son, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house, Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and By the way, nose rings, they're biblical. Just make sure you note that. So I put the the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show chesed and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. I mean, this guy's no nonsense, baby. (laughs) Just tell me straight up. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the brother and the father, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. It's obvious God has done this. How can we make a judgment on it. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth, not before them, but before the Lord. 
And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. We could see this as kind of cold, um, but it seems like they're maybe getting some cold feet here. This is kind of an ambiguous phrase, and Laban has been known, we know from later on, that he takes advantage of, of time for his own purposes. So it's actually possible that they were waffling a bit here. Um, could have dragged on unnecessarily. So verse 56, But he said to them, the servant said to them, Do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. We might blow by that, but we're not supposed to blow by that. This is exemplary faith, risky faith. This is actually echoing the I will go of Genesis 12. When Abraham, same verb, Abraham left his family to go to an unknown country, trusting the Lord and following him. Rebecca is doing the same thing right here. Going from her homeland, from her father's house, in faith, she is an exemplar of faith here. We've already seen that she's humble and hospitable, that she goes way beyond the call of duty. But here we see that she is strong and decisive and willing to exercise risky faith. So she's actually responding. Connect the dots here. She's responding to the providence of God. Not the nose rings and the bracelets. That might, you know, catch Laban's attention, but her attention has been caught by the providence of God. And she is being revealed here as the new mother of faith, the matriarch of Israel. Sarah has died, and she's going to take her place as the matriarch of, of, of Israel, the people of God, the people of faith. Verse 59, So they went away, Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed. So the family blesses Rebekah on her way out and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. They speak better than they know. She's being folded into these crazy, glorious promises, and they're echoing them. May your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. That echoes Genesis 22, 7, 17, that was just stated to Abraham after he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Look at it here. It's up on the screen. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You'll be victorious. You won't be defeated. So Rebekah is being woven into the covenantal promises given to Abraham. Sarah has died. Rebekah will be the new matriarch of the people of God. Verse 61. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, 
Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay. So, longest chapter in Genesis, the longest kind of single standalone story in Genesis. Why so much ink? on this one, on just this, like, getting hitched thing. What are we to make of this? What's the significance of it for us? So is this going to be a morning filled with a litany of biblical advice on how to find a mate? Christian dating principles, ready? Lesson number one, hire a dating service. The servant here is the gold standard of what you're looking for, and this has modern application to eHarmony and Match.com. Okay, lesson number two, arranged marriages are the biblical method. Lesson number three, wells or watering holes are a great place to find a wife. Okay, modern application to the grocery store or the water cooler. You can also see Genesis 29 because that's where Jacob and Rachel met. And Exodus 2, 15 to 21, Moses met his wife at the well as well. So we need to find the wells in our world and go hang out at them. Lesson number four, be sure to throw out your fleece. Lord, if this woman is the one, please let her be a Steelers fan. Okay. Yeah, that was, that's always fun to be able to do that. Okay. Lesson number five, be sure to test how she looks in a nose ring because nose rings are biblical. Lesson number six, make sure she's a relative Rebecca's dad was Isaac's cousin. Okay. Amen? We can close in prayer? Okay. No. This chapter is not about how to find a mate. In fact, it's worth noting here, just I think a little aside that's worthwhile. As you study the Bible, we need to distinguish between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive, what is described and what is commanded. Okay? So, for instance, just because the Bible describes slavery, that doesn't mean it condones or endorses it. Just because the Bible describes polygamy, that doesn't mean that it blesses it. Actually, it's almost always described in such a way as to depict, depict the misery and sorrows that come of it, precisely because it's not in keeping with God's original design. Just because the Bible describes a manner in which two people got married, that doesn't mean it just described the biblical method, okay? In the Bible, there's all kinds of methods. You know, betrothal was kind of a norm, which is different than modern courtship ideas. Sometimes the parents did the choosing. Sometimes the man did the choosing. You also have Ruth basically proposing to Boaz, prompted by her mother-in-law. You also have a passionate mutual pursuit represented in Song of Songs. You have love at first sight with Jacob falling for Rachel and working seven years to win her hand. You have dowries and, and gifts as a norm. So do you think we should do dowries today as a result? Dating isn't in the Bible. Courtship isn't in the Bible. You can't say from the Bible that there's only one authorized way to approach 
marriage. Okay, there's lots of models around the world and throughout history. What we need is lots of biblical wisdom for how to approach relationships with the opposite sex and as they lead to marriage. So if you live in a culture where dating is the norm, there's lots of biblical principles that should guide how you go about dating. If you live in a culture where arranged marriages are the norm, then there are lots of biblical principles that should guide how you go about arranged marriages. So we need to guard against reading the Bible through the lens of our cultural moment and our historical moment. There's clarity and there's blind spots in every culture and every time. So, all right, enough with that excursus. Now that we've established what the passage is not about primarily, what is it all about? Why is all this ink devoted to how Isaac and Rebecca got married? And what do we make of it? So, I think we can summarize the message of the chapter with the uh, heading for point number two in the outline. Extraordinary covenantal promises fulfilled by extraordinary faith and providences. Okay? Listen to it again. Extraordinary covenantal promises fulfilled by ordinary and extraordinary faith and providences. Okay? God had made some extraordinary covenantal promises to Abraham and Sarah, right? They're going to become a great nation. Even he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. They're going to have offspring like the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore. Kings would come from their line. Through them, all the families of the earth would be blessed. They would possess the land of the Canaanites. How is all this going to be fulfilled? It's going to be fulfilled by ordinary and extraordinary faith and providences. Okay, so first and fundamentally, they're going to be fulfilled by God's providences, his sovereign providences, his control of all things. He made these extraordinary promises, and he is going to see fit that they are fulfilled. His sovereign control is evident in the meticulous creative providence down on the ground that we see in this chapter. So God's writing the story of this world, and the story displays the fact that he's the primary actor. He's the, the star of the show in history. He's at work behind the scenes to accomplish his will and purposes. So you can think of verses like Ephesians 1.11. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. Or Romans 8.28, Tyler read, He's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if you've been with us, the front half of Genesis, as we've walked through chapters 1 to 23, we've seen repeatedly how there's so many obstacles and threats to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Human sinfulness, barrenness, threats from enemies, and on and on. But God keeps overcoming all the obstacles, and he does it through extraordinary and ordinary means. It's the glory of God that he micromanages the universe. Not like that has a terrible connotation in the business world, doesn't it? Micromanaging manager, like, oh, stop doing that. But aren't you glad that God is sovereign over all the details, that this world is not spinning out of control? So, Grand, eternal, redemptive plans oftentimes turn on the faithfulness of a single, ordinary individual. 
So these great promises are being fulfilled by ordinary promise, or providences, okay? Ordinary individuals like this servant. So the servant's faith is exemplary. Journey is going to take like a month, 500 miles. Abraham assures the servant that the Lord's going to send his angel to guide him, verse 7, but there's no guarantee that it's going to be successful. Hey, if she won't go with you, then you're free from the oath. So the servant focuses on being faithful, trusting in the Lord with all of his heart and not leaning on his own understanding. He's humble. He's dependent. He's wise and decisive. He's focused on God and focused on his master and others. He is not focused at all on himself. It's, it's really conspicuous. So, but here's the point. Here is this minor character in God's unfolding drama of redemption. He's not even named. Did you notice that? It could be Eleazar. One of Abram's servants is named Eleazar back in Genesis 15. But this in here, we don't know if it's him. He's not named. So here is a minor unnamed character playing a major role in the fulfillment of God's extraordinary covenant purposes. The future of the people of God, the fulfillment of the promises of God are in a sense hanging in the balance here. And it is the extraordinary providence of God in the life and faithfulness of this ordinary minor character that ensures the successful fulfillment of God's promises. So I love what Dale Davis says. He writes, the God of the Bible is not dependent on all stars. Aren't you glad that's true? There's hope that he could use us. So he used this unnamed servant to fulfill his grand, cosmic, glorious covenant promises. And he has done it over and over and over and over again through history. He used an ordinary peasant girl named Mary to bear the miracle baby, Emmanuel, God with us. He used an ordinary carpenter to embrace this incredible plan. An angel shows up. This baby in Mary's womb is from the Holy Spirit. Okay. He didn't divorce her. He protected her, and he embraced her. He took the shame on himself of what people might think. And then ultimately, the eternal Son of God takes on ordinary human flesh and weakness, took on the form of a servant, and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a horrible, shameful cross. And then after he rises from the dead and triumphs over death, he uses ordinary fishermen and ordinary men and women to turn the world upside down. And he used non-apostles like Philip. Remember Alex's message two weeks ago? The Acts of the Non-Apostles. He uses non-apostles like Philip to get the gospel to Ethiopia. Think about the crazy providence of meeting that chariot. Hey, go, go over and run by that chariot. Okay. <laughs> and that Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, and he gets saved and what do you think he did when he went back to Ethiopia? He spread the word. So crazy, ordinary providences lead to the fulfillment of wild cosmic purposes and promises. So how is seeing this, 
seeing God's providence, supposed to help us. I was reading a passage with boys last night, and that's what I asked. Like, what, what's the significance of this for us? And one of the boys said, well, if you see how God has worked in the past, then it would help you trust him. Yes, that's right. So the more you've seen his extraordinary providence and faithfulness in the past, his mercy and grace and his stubborn faithfulness, you know, Abraham and Sarah were kind of like a soap opera, (laughs) you know? The more you're encouraged to trust him in the face, because we kind of are a soap opera sometimes, right? To trust him in the face of difficult present tests of faith. And we can follow in faith with decisive and risky faith, okay? So sometimes we get this hindsight glimpse of how God works in his providential designs. Like, can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in heaven and have, like, the full download of hindsight? It's going to take who knows how many gazillion years to have all of that just laid out. We're going to celebrate it. All, like, we just get these little glimpses, and we see how God works. Whoa, that's amazing. But just think of the gazillion things God is doing through ordinary people all the time, everywhere. I mean, our minds are going to be blown with wonder at God's interweaving awesome designs and domino effects and ripple effects and providential connections and all of that. So I have a bunch of them here to share, and I don't know how many I'm going to get to, but let me just share a few. So you guys have heard of Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, right? So if you, if you compare your life to his, you can kind of feel like, what am I doing? You know, I mean, this guy trained tons of ministers. Like, um, on, on, their tw- on his 25th anniversary of ministry in London, he was thanking God and just talking about what's marked their church and the gospel is always central. And he says more than 9,000 people have joined this church. And I don't think that was conversion, or I don't think that was transfer growth, you know, like musical churches. This was people getting saved. So the Lord used this guy in a really mighty way. He started a number of orphanages. He wrote prolifically. He trained all kinds of ministers and evangelists and on and on. So you can get kind of depressed if you read a biography of him and how small and pathetic your life is. But guess what? You need to know how he got converted. So he was painfully aware of his sin and God's holiness and judgment, and he was troubled, you know, over and over again, like, how do I get right with God? So it continued into his school years, and in December of 1849, there was an outbreak of fever at his school. So he went home, and while he was on Christmas break, January 6, 1850, here's what happened. In his own words, I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm, Providence, one Sunday morning. I came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I didn't care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up. I think that means he couldn't get there, okay, because of the snow. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed. 
but this man was really stupid. I'm quoting. Okay? He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take... I'm not going to use like a British kind of Cockney accent, but you could think of kind of like a redneck maybe preaching here. Um, be a little bit... Anyway, whatever. Okay, so uh, where, where am I? Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be a worth a thousand a year, which would be the equivalent of like 400,000 a year, to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young men, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a Methodist could do, could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. Providence. That happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the word of God, and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. So he entered half past 10, not believing. He exited half past 12, and he was a totally different man. And everybody at home knew it. <laughs> So you can look at Spurgeon's life and get depressed at the meager output of your life. But the fact that God used that stupid, faithful preacher ought to encourage us all. Kind of like, you know, little boy with five loaves and two fish. Give your lunch to Jesus and he can fill the, feed a multitude with it. So 
there's so many examples of this kind of providence. Um, I'd encourage you to share some of your own stories along these lines. Um, that community group, I think I'm going to have to just leave it there. Maybe another time, some of these stories. But, again, the big picture here is, through all of this very small town faith, Genesis 24, and faithfulness, God is orchestrating his grand redemptive purpose and fulfilling his huge covenantal promises. The most extraordinary acts of providence fulfilling extraordinary covenantal promises. And just like it showed up in sandals in the faithfulness, the loyalty of this servant, the ultimate display of quote-unquote ordinary showing up in sandals, chesed in sandals. It's God with us, Jesus, walking in our shoes, in human skin. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of chesed, grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So Genesis 24, all the way through to Jesus, and also in our lives, it's all God's story. The story of his extraordinary covenant promises fulfilled by ordinary and extraordinary faith and providence. And so that all leads us, it beckons us to live by faith in our little part in the story. God's story, the grand story. So how does God accomplish his miraculous providence? He does it through so many pedestrian kind of brass tacks, ordinary decisions in providential moments. So much ordinary bringing about God's extraordinary. Eternal redemptive plans turning on a faithfulness of a single ordinary individual. That is awesome to think about. It infuses our everyday mundane with cosmic and eternal significance. So just one recently here, which we should celebrate right now, did you know this happened? Bonnie Saunders, led by the Spirit to be the matchmaker. Now, sometimes that's not being led by the Spirit, but okay. Led by the Spirit to be the matchmaker and connecting those two back there, Josh and Chelsea. Go ahead and raise your hands. And very quickly, those two got engaged, like on Friday. So, congratulations. So, what is going to be the ripple effect of that providence? Like, they're going to build a life together, and they're going to follow the Lord together, and there's all kinds of other stuff, like the Askrens, you know, the Lord moved them here to plant a church, and, you know, through a variety of circumstances, they had to close the doors on that church, and they're wondering what God is doing, and they're going to be moving soon, to head to Lynchburg, where Josh is going to be going to school. But one of the things that God has done is he's used James to disciple Josh. And what's going to be the ripple effect of that? And so even though there's frustration with some desires as far as this planning of a church and the doors closing and, God, what are you doing? Like, ordinary faithfulness is going to produce ripple effects of fruit. Or the Myers, I'm just thinking of them. They just entered into a contract on a house in Plano, Texas, which stinks because we don't 
want them to leave, and we love them. But they're not going there by accident. What does God have planned for that good family? Like, how is he going to use them? Who will their lives touch that will set in motion eternally significant changes that will ripple out out from there? Okay, and that's the case for all of us. Like, we could be heading into a week where, by God's grace, being faithful to him, he could use our little ordinary lives to change eternity for somebody. Like, this week matters. Today matters. Tomorrow matters. Every day you wake up matters. So sometimes it's through sweet providence, like, you know, engagement. Sometimes it's through severe and painful providence, like Betsy's stroke and the really rough journey they've walked for these last several months. But God is working and accomplishing eternally significant covenantal purposes through many ordinary providences and the ordinary faith of so many people. So God is sovereign over it all. Our moments, our ordinary moments, like of this week, can literally be determinative under God's sovereignty of a million further fulfillments. We are all part of the story, and our part matters. Faith and faithfulness in a sovereign, all things for good God of covenantal promise and providence. So, brothers and sisters, let's trust him as he calls us and leads us out into the unknown to a ultimately known and promised future. So we're going to close by singing By Faith, fitting song to close, um, a call to live by faith, trusting in the Lord with all of our heart and not leaning on our own understanding, by faith in our sovereign God of glorious providence. Let's pray and we'll sing and close. Oh God, thank you for showing your glory in this passage Thank you for showing your glory throughout history. Thank you for showing your glory in our little ordinary lives, and we pray that you would continue to do so. Help us to have eyes to see and willing hearts to trust you and live by faith, knowing that you don't need all-stars to accomplish your grand, cosmic, eternal purposes. Lord, use us and help us to trust you so that we are useful in your hand. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.